You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the EU Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. So we also would like to thank the Center for West European Studies at UW and its director Sabine Levy, who is away, as well as the German department for arranging uh, Ambassador Ruge's visit to UW. We also are <laughs> this is not all, we are also <laughs> a visitor. We are also honored to have two other German diplomats attending the lecture. Uh, Uli Fischer, who is a German honorary <coughs> consul in Seattle. And Ulrich Schiebeck, who is the new German Consul General in uh, San Francisco. On our side, we have uh, two <coughs> Dutch students, one German student, and I found out one from Saudi Arabia. One know. from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. uh, we're looking forward to hear uh, from uh, Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very, very much, much indeed. Yep. <laughs> Save the applause. Yeah, you know. <laughs> don't judge, don't judge too early. <laughs> So I'm, I'm delighted to be here at, at UW, I think, is, is what, UW, the, yeah. what you guys say here. Um, and I'm delighted to speak um, here at the, um, at the Jackson School. As the professor pointed out, um, my graduate education was at U.S. universities, at UNC Chapel Hill, but also Johns Hopkins Science, which in a, in a way I think is your competition to some extent um, in Washington, D.C. Um, so it's, it's great to be here. Uh, we're very happy to have a good cooperation with uh, UW, um, primarily through the Department of Germanics, um, but also I think some, some interaction with the Jackson School, and that's something we would very much like to develop. I believe in around two weeks' time we have an event as part of what we call Campus Weeks here, um, which will be on the Reformation on Martin Luther, Martin Luther uh, the 500th anniversary of the uh, Protestant Reformation. Uh, which is very important in German and European history. Um, and so that's, that's something that you might take an interest, interest in. The professor has kindly introduced uh, two of my colleagues already. I'd like to introduce a third one, and that's Daniel André sitting close to the exit, which I take uh, as a sort of lack of confidence in my ability to keep his attention. Um, but he is the so-called representative of German industry and trade. That means he represents the Confederation of German Industry in Washington, D.C., and also the German Chambers of Commerce, um, and covers all of the U.S., working with the German-American Chambers of Commerce that exist in various places. So um, the reason the four of us are here um, in Seattle is that we want to look at the relationship between uh, Washington State um, and Germany, um, and that we want to develop that relationship. That's relevant in, in a number of areas. One of those would be um, business and trade. Um, there's a fair amount of German direct investment also in Washington State. Um, another area would be education, not just higher education, but vocational training, which is something where Germany has a big track record. And then there's an area um, that we might uh, take up in our discussion, and that's climate policy. Um, as you may know, um, the governor of Washington State, Governor Inslee, will be one of the participants in a climate uh, meeting that will uh, take place in Germany in, I think, 10 days' time. 
um, and the fact that he's traveling all the way to Europe along with several other governors from the US um, is an indicator of the interest and the areas of, of potential cooperation. Um, the professor has kindly introduced myself. Let me just add this. Um, I joined the Foreign Service six months before the wall came down in Berlin. And, and the German student, where's the German student? That's him. German student doesn't get to say, but who knows when the wall came down? What year would that have been? Anyone here? Volunteer? Germans not admitted? Huh? 1989, that's right. So I, I joined the Foreign Service in the beginning of 1989, half a year before the wall came down. So it's, it's been a while. Um, and um, in, in Henry Jackson's lifetime, I sort of looked him up again. I, I saw that he passed away in 1983. I did my military service. So I'm, I'm a relic of the Cold War, if you like. Uh, that's how old I am. Um, uh, but that also gives me a kind of perspective, and perhaps that can be useful for, for our discussion. And the topic of our discussion uh, today, as I understand it, is US-European relations. And I want to be sure that we have plenty of time to discuss, but I'll, I'll, I have a few remarks for you as a starting point. And much of this is, is perhaps uh, things that you've covered um, in, uh, in this seminar. But um, as a starting point, um, after World War II, the United States of America created uh, what is today uh, known as the liberal world order, or we can perhaps say it was an important part in creating that, that world order. Um, and not just that, it also opted, it decided to play a key role in maintaining that world order um, over so many decades, since the 1940s. Um, what are the elements of that world order? I think you're familiar with them. The United Nations, the international financial institutions would be too. But relevant to our discussion, important, um, uh, NATO as a uh, defensive alliance, as a military alliance, uh, created very much by the United States of America, uh, with the presence of large numbers of US troops permanently in Europe. In Germany alone, at the height of the Cold War, 300,000 US troops uh, stationed there. Um, and a commitment by the United States of America, mind you, that uh, if push came to shove, the United States of America would defend its allies, and if need be, with nuclear weapons. So not a, not a detail. That was, that was uh, an important element. Another element, of course, was uh, the creation of European institutions, a series of institutions, organizations that today make up the European Union. The first one of those was the European Coal and Steel Community, then the European Economic Communities, and so on. And that grew into what, what is today the European Union. So the United States of America played a very important role in helping create those institutions and cooperating with them and encouraging closer European integration. Um, for decades, I think it's fair to say, U.S. administrations continue to support the principles and the institutions of the liberal world order. Um, and also very important, because international relations is never only about governments and diplomats operating. It's always about domestic politics as well. So U.S. administrations, um, you know, decade after decade, made the case to the U.S. electorate um, that it was in the interest of the United States of America to maintain this liberal world order, uh, which involved significant resources because um, maintaining these institutions, maintaining alliances, requires a lot of input in terms of money. Um, 
And, and that was a case that was made. It was made um, by U.S. governments telling um, the American people that it was in the U.S. interest to maintain these institutions because ultimately the investment would come back to the United States of America, to its economy and its people. So that case was made um, again and again, and that was, if you like, a consensus in U.S. politics um, that this was how it should be. Um, the liberal world order, I think we can say, triumphed back in 1989, 90, when the Soviet Union collapsed, when the Warsaw Pact collapsed, um, and some of the institutions and features of this order were extended to other parts of the world, um, liberal democracy, open markets, and so on. But if we look at this, at the picture 25 years afterwards, uh, we can see that, that uh, there's a lot of challenges out there. It's not quite as rosy as, as we thought perhaps 20 years ago. Um, there's challenges from many sides. There's challenges from Russia. There's challenges from China. There's challenges from illiberal regimes around the world. Um, and I think very significantly, there's challenges from electorates, from voters in European countries and also in the United States of America. I'd like to quote from an article by a young political scientist, Hal Brands, professor at Johns Hopkins Science, um, called U.S. Grand Strategy in an Age of Nationalism, Fortress America and its Alternatives. And I'll, I'll read you a quote. It's a little long, but, but I think you'll find it useful. So, Mr. Brands, or Dr. Brands, says this. For nearly 75 years, U.S. foreign policy has emphasized securing American interests through the leadership of an open, stable, and integrated global community, one in which Washington bears the heaviest burden in exchange for enormous benefits. But today, American internationalism is under fire. The 2016 presidential election saw strident critiques of globalization, alliances, multilateralism, and other components of America's post-war project. The triumph of Donald Trump brought to power a candidate who espoused a stark pugilistic nationalism. Whether America is decisively turning away from its post-war grand strategy, or post-war grand strategic tradition, remains uncertain. What is clear is that American grand strategy will have a more nationalistic flavor in years to come. Okay? I think that, that uh, Dr. Brands is right on the money in this assessment in saying that on the one hand there is a nationalistic challenge and questioning of the U.S. commitment to this liberal world order. And I think he's also right on the money in saying that uh, it's too early to tell precisely in which direction this is going to work out. Let me add this, and this is very important. Um, it is not for me to judge as a German diplomat the outcome of U.S. elections, um, right? Um, and in fact, it's important, very important for us to respect the political process here in the United States of America. Um, and we can, and I say this also because if we look at Europe, whether it's Germany or France or the United Kingdom, for example, we can see that many of the phenomena that, phenomena that were in play in the U.S. elections were very much in play in those European elections as well. A questioning of globalization, for example. Um, concerns about open markets, concerns about immigration and so on. So um, there's no critique here. However, my job as a German diplomat or as a European diplomat um, in the United States of America 
um, is to assess um, what exactly is at work here in the United States um, and in what direction things uh, might develop and how they might impact German and European interests. And finally, of course, how are we best able to secure our German and our European interests? And I say this because really uh, from a German point of view, um, that is pretty much the same thing. Uh, German diplomacy ultimately is successful if we operate in the European framework because that gives us the critical mass in this day and age of engaging with heavyweights such as the United States of America or China or others. So let's look at, at a number of concerns that have come up in the wake of the elections and that have been, if you like, on our agenda in, in engaging this U.S. administration. Uh, number one, uh, the American commitment to NATO as an alliance. During the campaign, Donald Trump uh, was out there and questioned whether the United States of America ought to maintain that commitment to NATO, raising the question of whether Europeans were doing enough for their defense and whether it was, it was a, uh, a good deal for the United States of America to stick with that. I would say the questions were raised, but in the months following um, the inauguration, um, cabinet secretaries and the president himself went out and reassured us that the U.S. would indeed stick with NATO. Second topic, U.S. attitudes towards the uh, European Union. I would say they have been mixed from the beginning. Um, I think uh, President Trump is someone who very much thinks in terms of the nation state as the key category, and I think for him the European Union is something that does not uh, sort of naturally fit into his worldview. Um, and I think that we continue to see a, a somewhat mixed uh, take of the president on, on the European Union. Um, that ties in with the third topic that we've been engaging on, and that is U.S. attitudes towards international trade and also investment. So the president feels, and he has articulated this uh, on a pretty much regular basis, that international trade agreements have not been good for the United States of America, that the United States has lost out. And that is certainly true when he talks about China, it's true when he talks about Korea, um, and it's also true when he talks about a country like Germany, and he references on a pretty regular basis the fact that Germany, when it comes to trade in goods, has a pretty, pretty significant trade surplus with the United States of America. Open brackets, if you look at trade in goods and services, the picture is, is already a bit different, but we can, we can, we can look into that, and, and my colleague Daniel can also um, come into that. But we've, we've also seen more recently the president and the U.S. trade representative coming out and speaking um, about NAFTA in very critical terms, and even going as far as questioning whether NAFTA should be continued. Uh, very significant. And of course, one of the very first things the president did was to uh, pull the plug on TPP. Very significant decision. So, so that's, that's area number three. Area number four, U.S. policy on climate issues. I've already mentioned climate. The president has gone out and decided that the U.S. should no longer be part of the Paris Agreement. That's a decision that will only become effective, I think, at the end of 2019. Um, but the basic decision has been taken, and of course it undermines the ability of the United States of America to impact the climate discussion. Nonetheless, we continue to have the conversation with the United States of America because the U.S. is such an important player in this area. 
And finally, and this is more by way of example, if you like, fifth point, U.S. policy on Iran. Uh, the president decided, uh, when was it, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, not to certify Iranian compliance with the nuclear deal um, and, um, and basically has put the issue to Congress. Um, and he has said if Congress does not take up the issue in, in what he would find a satisfactory manner, then um, he might consider dropping out of the nuclear deal altogether. Um, the uh, President of France, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, together wrote a letter uh, to the President mm -hmm. stating mm -hmm. the view that our three countries remain very much committed to the Iran nuclear deal because we feel that our strategic interests are safeguarded by that deal. It's not perfect, but, uh, but so there's, this is another area. Um, and we could look at, at further issues such as um, uh, North Korea and its nuclear program and so on. So you can see that there's some pretty significant issues out there um, on which we have either disagreements or sort of mixed, a mixed picture with the United States of America. Um, we know that in order to maintain our national interest, um, we need to cooperate with the United States of America. We need the U.S. as a security guarantor, for example. We also believe that the United States of America is much better off when it continues its close cooperation with um, uh, its European NATO allies and with the European Union, because that group, those almost 30 countries, um, and those organizations are the closest partners of the United States of America in the world. If you look at so many policy areas, it is these countries and it these, it's these organizations um, who cooperate with the United States and also serve as force multipliers, if you, send, if you, if you will, despite disagreements that may, that may be out there. And that is why our approach, approach of the German government has been um, to um, engage in a very intensive way um, with the Trump administration. So since February, um, from the chancellor um, and cabinet ministers to senior officials and members of parliament, we've had a huge number um, of senior visitors coming to Washington, D.C., engaging with this administration and making our point. Um, and I would say that despite some of these significant differences of opinion that exist, the administration, but also Congress, um, has been very good in, in terms of receiving our people and making space. The chancellor came in March. Um, my foreign minister, I think, was the first foreign minister to meet Secretary Tillerson after he was sworn in. And he saw Secretary Tillerson three times in Washington, D.C. in the space of six months, just as an indicator of the willingness of the administration to engage with us also the willingness of the U.S. Congress, senators and congressmen, to engage with us. That's been there, and that has been our chosen approach, um, not to basically turn our back and to say, it looks like we no longer agree on some of these key issues, but rather the opposite, go out and engage. And that's what we've done. In some cases, I think we've seen that the policy of this administration has returned to um, the more mainstream approach. I would say that is certainly true with NATO. I've mentioned it already. The administration basically reaffirmed the commitment of the United States of America to NATO. 
um, its commitment to Article 5, which is the article that governs self-defense. Um, so that, I think, is definitely in the area of a, of a positive. In other areas, things have not turned out the way we'd have, we would have liked to see them. Climate policy is one, one issue, and that was certainly something that we discussed very intensively with the U.S. government in the run-up to the president's decision to drop out of the Paris Agreement. Um, and I think when it comes to Iran, we can say the same thing. We lobbied the administration and Congress pretty intensively, arguing that it would be in the best interest, not just of European nations, but also in the best interest of the United States of America and Israel to stick with the Iranian nuclear deal. And the president has decided not to certify. Not the same as the US government dropping out of the deal. Um, so we're in a kind of halfway house, but we would have liked to avoid even the scenario. <clears throat> and in some cases, I, I think, it's fair to say that uh, the final direction of policy has not been set. I think in terms of trade, we hear a lot of criticism from this administration on trade issues, but on a number, um, on a number of issues, the administration has not taken final decisions. There were um, investigations into uh, trade issues, for example, steel and aluminum, um, and there was a threat that uh, punitive tariffs might be imposed against European producers, and that has not happened so far. So NAFTA hasn't happened yet. Um, so there's a number of areas where this is still a moving target. Um, I also should add that this is not just about engaging with the U.S. administration and saying, look, we'd like you to continue the way things have been for the past 60 years. Um, we also recognize that there's a dynamic at play here and that there's an expectation in the United States that Europeans and specifically Germans should be doing more, should be operating in a different manner. For example, when it comes to defense, there's a clear expectation on the part of this administration and it would have been exactly the same, I think, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, that Europeans should be doing more for defense. They should be spending more on defense and that's something that we have collectively agreed. All of us should be spending 2% and we should reach that target by 2024. That's something we're committed to. So we understand that that's there. And I think there's an expectation with this administration and also with many members of Congress that Germany should play a more active role and should show more leadership on some of those issues of European security. Um, and, and so we're aware of that. We know about those expectations. I would say in some areas we're already delivering, we're increasing our defense spending, we are playing a leading role on a number of issues, whether it's migration, whether it's the Euro crisis, whether it is dealing with the situation in Ukraine. But I think the expectation here in the US is that we should be doing more, and that's something that we have to factor in as well. Let me close with another quote from, from uh, Hal Brands. Um, and it, it sort of ties in with what I've, I've just described. He says that um, even if you have a U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy that is more nationalistic, it doesn't have to be what he describes as Fortress America. It could be something else. And let me read this to you. He says, yet there's also another model, a more benign version of American nationalism that might be thought of as an internationalism with a nationalist accent. This approach would not fundamentally dismantle the post-war international order, the emphasis would be on securing better deals, more evenly distributed burdens, and enhancing America's relative position 
within that order. And he wraps up by saying the first model, which he describes as Fortress America, sort of always putting America first, neglecting other interests. The first model represents the path to superpower suicide, his view, and a far uglier, disoriented world. The second would involve some real drawbacks and disruption, but could perhaps help sustain an international project and global order that are presently under strain. Um, so, so that's one way of looking at it. I think he, I think he has a good, good point there in sort of describing the dynamics. I think he's right in saying that the jury is still out. We don't know in quite what direction this administration will go. I hope that you found these remarks useful, and I think we have half an hour to discuss, and I, I look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you, Professor. Um, you've mentioned uh, a couple times different actions Russia has taken over the course of the past few years, and moving forward over the next 15 to 20, what do you see as Russia's role in Europe? And do you think the West, meaning Europe and the United States, can shape Russia's actions moving forward? Mm -hmm. Russia is a really, really interesting case. Um, if you look at the fundamentals, um, Russia is not a very strong power. It has a shrinking population. It has an economy that is overly dependent on um, energy. Um, it is not part of the big development of the digital economy that I think will be um, a determinator of success or failure. Um, so it's, it's basically in a weak position. And looking forward, uh, let's say, 20 years, um, I think Russia um, uh, will struggle um, to maintain its position. But it's playing its weak hand very well. So the resources, the limited resources it has, um, it is using very well. The, I think the economy of Russia is roughly the equivalent of the Dutch economy, I think, the Netherlands. Right? So that's not huge. Um, but it's rebuilt its military, um, and it has been very focused, um, and it has put itself on the geopolitical map as a power that, um, that cannot be ignored. And if it is ignored, then it will come into the picture and it will obstruct and disrupt and create problems. Um, and that they've done very successfully, for example, in Syria, um, for example, in Ukraine. Um, so I think the case of Russia is a very interesting one. The way we look at it from a German perspective is that we have to combine two approaches, and, and in a sense it's very familiar from the Cold War. So one half of that, or one approach, is, is deterrence and defense. So we have to be able um, to um, resist Russia um, in terms of, of military force, to deter them from attacking um, NATO and EU countries. We have to do more in that department. And we cannot rely quite in the same way um, on the US as we have in the past. Although, um, we should note that the United States of America um, is sending back troops to Europe, right? Something that hasn't happened in, in, in a long time. So. Um, troop levels in Europe are going up um, and apart from the personnel that is being sent over there um, enhanced forward presence of US troops in Poland plus a US brigade in Poland um, in addition to that you have the United States of America pre-positioning equipment 
for troops to be flown over to Europe um, to use that equipment in pushing back against any kind of Russian incursion. So these, these things are happening. Um, I think geopolitically speaking, and, and, and I think here in, in Seattle, um, um, you're very close to Asia, and Asia always, I think, features in, in the way you look at the world, and it should feature in the way we look at the world as well. I think the more interesting case is the case of China, because China is, is, is um, the emerging power that has a much more solid economic basis, um, and that will be able in the long run to increase defense spending, still much lower than U.S. defense spending, but significant, and certainly significant in a regional context. So China being able to project power in East Asia. I think that is, that is, is I would say, in the medium and long term, a more serious uh, challenge to U.S. interests and potentially also to, um, to European interests, and one that requir will require a lot of dialogue. And again, that's, I think, a German trademark. We have a very strong relationship with China. We have um, an ongoing conversation at the top level. Chancellor Merkel has been in office for 12 years, and she made a point from the beginning of engaging the leadership of China. Um, and so that's something we want to do as well. But in the short term, Russia is a real, is a real challenge for us. Um, in the medium and long term, I think China is the much more, much more significant challenger to the international order as we've known it. Please. Uh, you literally touched upon the topic of uh, trade investment, but could you maybe elaborate a bit more about the trade agreement that is being negotiated between the EU and US or the TTIP? Mm -hmm. let, me, let me say two sentences on that and I'll turn it over to Daniel Andrich, who's a real expert on, on TTIP. Um, <laughs> um, right, so so um, there was a hope that, that TTIP could be negotiated and finalized under the Obama administration. That turned out not to be the case. And since then, we've had signals from the United States of America that there could be an interest in re-engaging on a transatlantic trade deal. Um, but I think right now, frankly, um, we are waiting for uh, the dust to settle on several European elections that we've had. We had one in France, we had one in Germany. TTIP was not very popular in Germany. We're still in the process of putting together a new coalition um, in Germany. Um, so it's too early to tell. But, but I think there's a lot of questions out there, and given the overall attitude of this administration towards trade and trade agreements, the question is, can you have a productive discussion at this point in time with this U.S. administration? But Daniel, over to you. Maybe just one word to add on. You always have to have the perspective on trade imbalances. It's very important when it comes to free trade agreements. And we started to push for TTIP back in Germany uh, with uh, our sort of administration and the rest of the level two to get better access to the U.S. market when it comes to public procurement and other issues. Now this new administration decided to renegotiate or negotiate trade deals to reduce the trade deficit. Well, this is kind of a different approach when it comes to free trade nations. And we have to balance this and, and get back to, you know, in Berlin as well and have a discussion on what we want from a, from a new free trade agreement negotiation if we put on, on an effort on this issue. But again, uh, this new administration has a strong focus or a mission is to reduce the overall trade. 
the U.S. has like 740 billion trade deficit with the world, 347 with China, 69 with Japan, and then 65 with us. So and that is, that's goods and that's services good. combined? No, that's, good. that's just goods. Yeah. This is the interesting point. The, the, this number, it's, it's, it's very, the focus of this administration is very much on the trade in goods and the trade deficit of the United States in goods. But if you factor in services, Daniel, what's, what's the picture? It's still 500 billion okay. uh, deficit trades and uh, goods and services. But interesting point, what Boris just said on China and the bigger game is China. Uh, Germany has a trade deficit with China only about 4.5 billion. Mm. The U.S. 347 with China. This kind of shapes the perspective on how you approach to China as a market. We are heavily invested in China. This is a huge market for German exports. Here it's more sort of an import situation with China. Again, this shapes the perspective on trade deals. And we were you know, surprised to some degree uh, and, and glad to hear when Ambassador Lighthizer, the new USTR, was at his hearings with the Senate Finance Committee, which means that TTIP was high on the agenda, also with the chairman of both committees. But again, we have to look in the language and the rhetoric, what happens. Waiting and willing. Thanks. Maybe in, in terms of context, um, I remember a um, um, I remember a very useful graph um, that was in, in, in one of the German newspapers about attitudes on TTIP in Europe. And out of 28 EU member states, I think there were 24, 25, where the majority was in favor of TTIP. And then there were, I think, three or four um, including Germany and Austria, where there was a majority uh, that was skeptical of TTIP. I think the, the margin in Germany was maybe 50-something percent opposed or skeptical of TTIP. And I think um, that shows you that um, uh, even in an economy that is so integrated as the German economy, that depends so heavily on international trade and investment, um, that the population can have serious questions about international trade in the, era, in the era of globalization. So that's something to keep in mind when we look at U.S. debates as Europeans and when we look at the skepticism of U.S. voters um, and the concerns about open, open economies um, and um, losing jobs. Um, so I think it's, it's something that, you know, we have to be clear that this is not a U.S. phenomenon. It is quite a widespread phenomenon among global uh, developed economies. Um, and, um, and it's something all of us have to maneuver in terms of our domestic politics. Please. So, uh, so yeah, I know that you have been the German ambassador to Saudi Arabia recently, and I'm sure you know a lot about the Saudi society and also the government. So what do you think the type of Saudi Arabia does Germany want? The Saudi Arabia that is now trying to project the kind of modernization plan to the West while they're imprisoning a lot of Saudi citizens because of criticizing the government, not to mention that the war that they have with Yemen and also the blockade that we have now with Qatar, or the type of Saudi that has been with old kings that only kept to itself and at the same time there is a like modernization process going on, but it's slowly and without media coverage. Look, um, Saudi Arabia is a is an, a very very important country in in, in in a number of areas, in terms of energy, um, in terms of religion, 
um, as a regional player, um, enormously important. Um, and in some ways, we have been Germany has a Germany's policy has been more reserved in when it came to um, when it comes to security cooperation with Saudi Arabia than the policies of the U.S., the United Kingdom, and France. So, in defense cooperation, uh, we have a policy of being much more restrained when it comes to defense exports um, to Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region. Um, but we work closely on on many many issues. Um, uh, for example, when it comes to security, we had uh, German federal police advising the Saudi border guard um, on securing its borders. Um, when it came to the education system and economic development, we've been very active. In renewable energy, we've been active and so on. Um, so there is a long, a long sort of tradition at this point of, of cooperation between Germany and Saudi Arabia. What everyone wants to see, I think who is sensible, is is a modernization of the Saudi economy and society. Um, but it's a challenge, I think. It's a challenge because the demography of Saudi Arabia, like that of many, many um, Arab countries, um, is challenging. We have many young people uh, and uh, the need for education, the need for job creation, that's extremely challenging. And if you, if you look at the creation of jobs in uh, industry and in the service economy, um, again, it's challenging because if, if, if you think back to where Saudi society is coming from and you go back 50 years, you know, it's, it's a completely different situation. No heavy industry, really. Um, a very agricultural economy in, in many areas and then trade and sort of manufacturing at small scale, but not, not this size and not... So it's, it's, it's very challenging. Um, we hope that, that um, Vision 2030, which is the name of the modernization program of the Crown Prince, that that will be successful. Uh, we're certainly willing to support it. German companies are out there uh, playing a role also in training up young people. And I think that's our trademark in the United States of America and in Saudi Arabia. German companies, I think, um, when, they, when they go to a market, sometimes I think they're reluctant. Sometimes they're not the biggest risk takers. I think that's on the downside. Uh, but when they go, on the upside, I think, they go there for the long haul. And they invest in people. Um, and they train up people. So you can find it here. If you go to Charlotte, North Carolina, you'll find a Siemens gas turbine plant. And they work very closely with the community college. And they put people into apprenticeships programs. And they take them and they you know, give them associate's degrees and bachelor's degrees and graduate degrees. And if they're successful, you know, the company will basically, basically continue to invest in them and, 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 and move them forward. And it's exactly the same thing that Siemens and other major German companies will do in Saudi Arabia. So that's what we'd like to see. You touched on human rights as well. And, um, and in that domain, I have to say, I had very good experience in, in Saudi Arabia because um, we are, one of our trademarks in our foreign policy is an active interest in human rights. Um, and basically not trading, trading off human rights against business interests. Um, and so, you know, we did, we, we, we did support German businesses in Saudi Arabia, for sure. Mm -hmm. But I can mm -hmm. tell you that I had a lot of interaction with um, people um, who were in one way or another critics of the royal family and of the government, be they women who were part of the driving campaign, 
um, including women who, who went to jail for being part of the driving campaign, be it people who were um, promoting civil rights and freedom of expression, be it uh, Shia from the eastern province who felt that they, their rights were not being uh, looked after by the government. And, and you know, I, the Saudi government, I think, knew everything I was doing as ambassador and everything my colleagues were doing in engaging with these people, but they allowed it to happen. And in many, in many uh, countries in the Middle East and North Africa, um, you would not be able to do, to do that as ambassador. You would not be allowed to interact with these people, or if you did interact with them, they would be put away um, in a heartbeat. So I would say hats off to, uh, to the government of Saudi Arabia for allowing that. And I think we see forward movement. We see women driving, and I think women driving will have a huge knock-on effect. And I think you know, this is a broader issue, again, goes back to globalization. Any country that, um, that does not um, empower women, but that holds women back, I think is destined to fail in the 21st century. If you don't use the full potential of your population, and that's, you know, regardless of gender, regardless of religion, regardless of race, whatever it is, if you discriminate against a significant part of your population, you're basically not using the talent pool that is out there, and therefore you will fail, ultimately. I think that's sort of a foregone conclusion. So I think Saudi Arabia has taken a good step forward, which is not to say that we don't have issues and, and areas of concern when it comes to human rights. Long, long answer to your question. Please. Uh, I wonder what you think of that the um, migration crisis in Europe, especially the impact, mm -hmm. what you think the impact on Germany will be in kind of what the um, impetus was for Germany to uh, take in so many refugees. I think because mm -hmm. there's, you know, the economic component about um, having a, a younger demographic. Yeah. But I think it seems like some of it kind of transcended the economic to more um, moral issues and kind of what, what were some of mm. right. this. So, very good question and very important topic. Um, and I think we had a discussion days ago in Washington DC it was ambassadors from NATO countries sitting down and discussing with members of Congress um, and I was there uh, on behalf of my ambassador uh, we you know had a long discussion much of it was focused on Russia and then at the end my my uh, French colleague the ambassador of France in Washington came in and said we haven't spent enough time discussing um, the security risks arising from migration um, and, and the whole issue of um, North Africa and also Sub-Saharan Africa um, and the demographics and the economic situation and the pressure that will result from that in terms of migration. And I think that's, that's, that's a point that is well taken. We, we, you know, we understand that we struggle to respond effectively to these threats that are out there. The Russian, the threat posed by Russia is one that you know, is, came as a bit of a surprise after, after many years of stability, um, uh, Russia occupying and annexing Crimea, playing, playing a very negative role in eastern Ukraine, and that came as a bit of a shock and, and, and sort of called many things into question. But alongside that, we had the migration issue. Um, if you go back to 2015, um, the German government was in a very difficult situation faced with, with a huge number of, um, of refugees um, and 
the chancellor took a decision. Um, I think it was really not so much motivated by economic considerations. Um, you know, it's true that that uh, the German population uh, would would you know profit from um, from immigration, um, but you know, the notion that that one million refugees from war-torn countries like Syria and Iraq, um, Afghanistan to some extent, people who are traumatized, some of whom are highly educated, some of whom are from, you know, very simple backgrounds from rural environments, you know, it's 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 not a it's not a straightforward win, that's for sure, right? Um, it's not the way that Canada, for example, goes about immigration. And in fact, Canada is a model that is discussed in Germany right now, you know, looking very much at uh, the Canadians, I think, have found a balance between doing the humanitarian, which they do, um, but also looking very much at what are the skills that are needed, um, what are the profiles that are needed to develop the Canadian economy to benefit Canadian society. And I think that's the that's debate we're having in, in Germany right now. So I would say the fallout from that has been um, a debate in Germany. The fallout has also included um, right-wing parties, such as the Alternative for Germany, becoming stronger, coming out with a 12.6% result in our national elections uh, a little more than a month ago. Um, and that is definitely a factor and will be a factor in the political debate. And our ability to integrate those refugees um, and to make them successful members of the German society and productive members of our economy, that will be decisive. If we fail to do that, I think we have some long-term long -term consequences that will arise from that. Um, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic that we can, we can handle this. Um, and, um, um, but that's, that's so, you know, part of the, part of the, the consequences we, we have seen already, but I think this is a long-term proposition the vast majority of these people will not return to their countries of origin. Some of them will, will return, that's for sure. And I think there will be a tougher policy, especially when dealing with people who, um, who, uh, who break the law. I think there will be a lot less tolerance for, for, um, for keeping them. Does that more or less answer? Yeah, thank yeah? you. Please. Yeah, given the recent elections in a uh, Turkey and Austria, do you foresee any sort of impact on the EU economically or otherwise, especially with Turkey having been trying to be in the, get into the EU for several years before this? Mm -hmm. Turkey is a real, um, is a real challenge. Um, Turkey is an enormously important partner in NATO and has been from the beginning. Um, and it is, it is, you know, the NATO partner who on the one hand, borders um, not Russia directly across the Black Sea, yes, um, but countries that are Russia's neighbors. That's important. But then it's very important as basically the link between NATO and, and the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and it's very, very important in that regard. Think of Syria, think of Iraq. If we want to have a, get a handle on those situations, which is very, very difficult to begin with, uh, it's impossible to imagine that we would be able to do that if we didn't have a very significant level of cooperation with, with Turkey. So we, we need Turkey. We also need Turkey to deal with uh, the refugee issue. Um, and at the same time, Turkish domestic politics have developed in a very, very bad direction. 
I mean, that's, that's an, a remarkable development because I remember before I went to Saudi Arabia, I was director for the Middle East and North Africa, and I went to Ankara and Istanbul quite often. Um, and, um, and the Turkish economy was doing very well, and Turkey was doing very well in its talks with the European Union and moving ahead. Um, and we're in a completely different environment today, where, where um, domestic politics have, have become very, very confrontational with the Kurds, but also with, with um, almost everyone who, who does not agree with, with uh, President Erdogan. Um, and there's very serious concerns about freedom of the press, about human rights, about people mm -hmm. being detained mm -hmm. on the basis of nothing. Uh, there's concerns about German citizens uh, being detained and basically becoming hostages in a kind of political, um, uh, political confrontation. Um, and, and as you probably saw, um, when was it, two or three weeks ago, the US government stopped issuing visas in Turkey. That's pretty, you know, that's a pretty dramatic move um, because, because uh, local staff of uh, the U.S. Embassy and U.S. consulates had been detained or were being, uh, were at threat of being detained and family members of theirs were qu called in for questioning and some of them were, were being detained. So really the, the, the fundamentals of the U.S.-Turkish relationship was, was being called into question. So that's a, you know, it's a big headache. So we have to balance that, if you like. On the one hand, Turkey is a very close partner of ours, um, and we have bent over backwards, I think it's fair to say, in order to maintain that relationship. We also have close to 4 min million people in Germany who are either Turkish citizens or second or third generation um, uh, German citizens of Turkish origin. That's a really important constituency. We have members of parliament um, who are of Turkish origin, our future foreign minister may be uh, somebody, a member of the Green Party of Turkish origin. Certainly he's being, his name is being mentioned as a possible cabinet minister and minister of foreign affairs. So, you know, there's, there's some real issues that are at play. What we would like to see is for Turkey to return to something that is more like what we saw a few years ago, developing the Turkish economy, um, engaging with the European Union, engaging with Germany and also with the United States of America, uh, moving the country ahead, um, and and you know we we understand that um, Turkey joining the European Union is not a short short term proposition, but I would maintain that it ought to be a long term proposition because that's what it's been since the 1960s, um, and and if that's what what the people of Turkey aspire to, and if they can meet the the conditions, I think that's you know that's something we should not be taking off the table. But the situation now has become so bad that in the German election campaign, the Social Democratic Party, which traditionally has been a champion of Turkey, um, said we should seriously consider stopping um, these talks, right, and taking that off the table. So it's an indication of how bad things are. Right? Bad situation, but we're working very hard to sort of stabilize it and to return to to more more normal situation in our relationship. I mean, you mentioned uh, President Trump decertifying the Iran nuclear deal, but that decertification was an American domestic law and doesn't have any bearing on That's the right. deal. If he ends up pulling out at some future mm -hmm. date, what do you think the European reaction will be and what will be the fallout like mm -hmm. geopolitically? In a nutshell, um, you're right. So the president not certifying is a purely internal U.S. matter. Um, but what is remarkable, of course, is that the... Um, um, International Atomic Energy 
agency has certified consistently that Iran is delivering um, on the nuclear deal. Um, and, um, and, and, and so to us it was, it was counterintuitive that the President of the United States should say that, that he could not certify. You can make the case that what he is certifying is a little bit broader than just that. It's not just Iranian compliance, it is whether the deal is in the U.S. interest. And he personally doesn't feel that the, the deal is in the U.S. interest. Some of his cabinet secretaries feel that it's in the U.S. interest and have said so, including the Secretary of Defense, um, who's very knowledgeable on, on issues of the Middle East. Um, now, if the president were to decide to, to drop out of the, the JCPOA, I think that would not stop um, the Europeans from sticking with the JCPOA and trying to stabilize it. But the question is whether Iran would uh, want to stick with it, because in Iran you would have a debate, and you're having the debate already, whether this deal is really acceptable from an Iranian point of view. Um, if they can't sort of engage in um, trade and investment with the rest of the world, as was foreseen under the nuclear deal. Um, so they might decide to, to drop out, and if Iran decided to drop out, basically what you would be talking about is um, the risk of, um, of Iran developing a nuclear capability and the risk of Iranian breakout having a, a nuclear weapon within the space of perhaps one year. That's a very serious prospect. Um, so it's something, it's a can that we've not just kicked down the road, if you like, um, uh, but, but at a minimum what this deal does is it, it delays this breakout scenario until somewhere 8, 10, 12, 15 years down the road. So it gives us time um, to, to engage with Iran. And, and, and perhaps look at it in, in, in this way. Um, during the Cold War, um, uh, Ronald Reagan described the Soviet Union as the evil empire. Right? So there was no love lost between the United States of America and the Soviet Union. Germany was divided. Half of it was in the Warsaw Pact and the Communist bloc. Half of it was in, um, in NATO um, and the Western world. And yet, despite this hostility and this confrontation, um, we never stopped talking to the Russians. We always had an embassy in Moscow, and so did the United States of America. And the proposition was that in the long run, if we, if we could hold the line militarily, if we could stop the Soviet Union from invading Western Europe, um, and if we engage the Soviet Union in terms of talking, in terms of, of uh, business, um, in terms of debating the issue of human rights, then perhaps it was conceivable that in the, in the long run, the Soviet Union would change and things would change um, and we could overcome the confrontation, which is exactly what happened. As a result of a very tough policy, so it was, on the one hand it was detente, defense and detente, um, and on the other hand it was dialogue, no, sorry, defense and detente, um, um, deterrence and defense on the one hand, and on the other hand it was dialogue um, and, and detente. So those two things. Um, and that is a policy that we Europeans feel is perfectly applicable to Iran. So we should, not, we should not tolerate Iranian misbehavior in terms of supporting terrorism, in terms of um, intervening in Middle Eastern countries where they have no business of, 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 sort of trying to dominate, in terms of developing uh, missiles, these things. Definitely. We should push back against that. Um, 
but at the same time, we should engage with Iran, um, and we should we should sort of work in a direction where they can become a normal country in the Middle East and a productive country. And by the way, they're a country where the United States of America is enormously popular among the population, right? So let's try and leverage that somehow and move them into a more normal place where despite all disagreements, they can be a, you know, more of a normal actor. It's, a, it's not a short-term proposition, to be sure. It's a long-term proposition, but that's the way we look at it. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons we'd like to stay the US, uh, see the U.S. stay in the, in the deal as well. Thank you. Thank you.